Greed. It's an ugly sounding word, isn't it? Has such ugly connotations. Greed. Our society may have made peace with the idea that greed can be harnessed for good, but the idea that greed is good has never gone mainstream. Instead, the mantra, you can't take it with you, is what's become cultural wisdom. Conspicuous consumption is out. Authenticity is in. Not a bucket of cash. We carry around bucket lists, don't we? Real simple outsells better homes and gardens. It's the Disney villains who are motivated by money. Heroes are motivated by love. We live in a culture which seems somewhat chastened, celebrating generosity instead of greed. Yet I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to suggest that 21st century American society has in any way become less materialistic. In fact, you could quite easily argue that we are probably the most materialistic society in the history of the planet. Those of you here not from the States are nodding right now. You've seen this. Now, it's, it's astounding the pace at which things moved from the category of luxury to the category of necessity. A cell phone, internet, laptop, gluten-free, organic, airfare, discount, fashion, even for some of you, Netflix. Right? Things that your parents never dreamed of that you can't dream of living without an interesting contradiction, isn't it? Why can we know so certainly the money can't buy happiness and it live so enthusiastically as if it can? Jesus told us, Luke 12, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of of possessions. I find those to be arresting words. Watch out. Be on your guard. How many other warnings did Jesus give us with such force? Are you on your guard? What's something you've done this last week to protect yourself, to guard yourself from greed? Which is what brings us to this topic of giving, of generosity. After all, generosity is in many ways antimatter to greed. Its opposite is antidote, its cure. And just like Jesus talked about many types of greed, interesting, I wonder which type of greed is your type of greed. So there are also many types of generosity. And, and, and yet, as we contemplate this topic of generosity, I think we are woefully unprepared as a society, even as a church, to understand what true generosity is in Scripture. Why the Bible really calls us to be generous. Why be generous? Well, look at the needs around us. Why be generous? Well, because of, of all people, we Christians ought to be generous. And while those 
two things are both true, this language of need and obligation is actually largely absent from the Bible's teaching on generosity. In fact, it's, it's hard to find a verse on generosity in the Scripture that doesn't in some way provoke our modern sensibilities. Let me give you two quick examples. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. Really? Does the Red Cross care about your attitude when you write out a check? Does Joe Biden care about why all those people gave to him this last week? And yet God... God is pleased by a cheerful giver. His concern is not primarily the need that a gift meets. It apparently is the manner in which it's given. That's different from how we think, isn't it? In fact, to the point that 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give away all I have, think about that for a moment. If I give away all I have, but have not love, I gain nothing. Wow. So even a gift that extravagant, it's worth nothing without love? It has no inherent value unless given for the right reasons? Again, that's different from how we think, isn't it? There are so many examples like that in the Bible. To whatever extent your attitude about giving centers on need and obligation... I think you're in for some gentle shock therapy this morning as we look at what the scriptures say should be our motivation for giving. So I I wonder, why do you give? Why do you think generosity is important? Or maybe a question that would matter much more, why does God want you to give? And that's our question for the rest of this morning. I should point out this morning that when I talk about giving this morning, I'm thinking primarily about giving money and particularly about giving money to our church. After all, the clearest command about giving in Scripture in the New Testament, Galatians 6.6, 6, is about giving to support the teaching you receive at church, which in our economy will mean money. Which means if, if you're not a member here, just know this sermon is aimed primarily at us, this church family. I hope you get a lot out of this. Thank you for being willing to sit in on a conversation we're having together about how the Bible calls us to support this church. I should also point out that normally at our church, our morning sermons are expositional in nature, which simply means we'll take a text of Scripture like we will next week, and the main point of the sermon is the main point of the text. But today's sermons can be more topical in nature. We're going to look all over the Bible to answer that question I asked earlier. Why does God care about what you give? And the answer is going to come in three parts. First, God wants us to give because he desires our hearts. Second, because he desires our reward, to give us reward. And third, because he desires his glory to be made known. Those are our three parts for this morning. Our hearts, our reward, his glory. And let me just give you a bit of advice on listening to this sermon, because this is different from a typical sermon in our church. My guess is some of us are already in a defensive crouch, at least mentally. And our minds are whirling through how we're spending our money and hoping desperately by the end of the sermon it's still going to feel sufficient. Or some of us are already feeling waves of guilt, even though I haven't even gotten to our first point yet. (laughs) That's on top of our normal sermon distractions, right? Like, oh, what time's my first appointment tomorrow? Uh, When is he ever going to ask me out? 
We are so distractible, okay? So here's my advice. Listen to the sermon. <laughs> Take a vow before God that you are not gonna use your phone except for notes and Bible. And listen, which for this sermon means leave the homework for later. Uh, jot down questions you might want to ask yourself as we go through and take some time this week to ask those questions. But if you spend the time of the sermon answering in your mind the question I ask in the first point, you're going to miss the other two. So listen to the sermon, take notes, jot things down, follow through. Don't forget about this. Uh, this sermon isn't designed to extract a little bit extra money from you. It's designed to change your outlook on giving for the rest of your life. That's my prayer at least. And uh, we'll see what God does with this. So let's start with the passage on the front of your bulletin, Philippians chapter 4. You're going to find it on page 982 of the Pew Bible. Let me start reading in verse 10, where Paul thanks this church in Philippi for their financial support of his ministry. This is what he writes. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. It, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, with that, let's turn to the first answer to the question I asked. Why does God want you to give? Well, we generally ground our motivation for giving in the need at hand, but God wants us to give not because he has a need, but because he wants our hearts. If you look at this passage, you think this is a pretty crazy way for Paul to begin a section on giving, isn't it? When you get a request for money in the mail, it almost always starts with some very compelling description of the need at hand. So how does Paul start? By making it really clear, he doesn't have any needs, right? Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, whether you give or not. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift. So why does he want these people to give? Finishing verse 17, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul wants them to give because it's good for them to give. Which is a theme through all of Scripture. We serve a God who has no needs. 
That'll be the point of the sermon tonight in Psalm 50. A few verses earlier from what we look at tonight in Psalm 50, we read, God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. God has no needs, and yet from the very beginning of the Bible, God has made it quite clear that he is delighted when we give. Not because he wants a handout, but because he wants our hearts. Consider Jesus' words in Matthew 6.21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not speaking of the heart as a physical organ, but as the, the source, the seed of our desires and affections. If, if you buy stock in Nike, you will experience a sudden interest in how Nike's doing, right? If you give such that your treasure is really in heaven, well, your heart will be there also. That's where your affections will go. Now, it's interesting, this connection between heart and treasure, it works in two directions. So your heart will follow your treasure. But in addition, the condition of your heart reveals your treasure. If you're a Christian, your call from Jesus is to live in such a way that if it turns out that heaven is not real, your life will have been a complete and utter waste, a calamity, a tragedy. That's what it means to live by faith. That's what it means to put all your eggs in one basket, the basket of Jesus' promises. So how are we doing with that? How do we know how we're doing with that? Well, we look at our hearts. How much do I long for the world, and how much do I long for heaven? That's Matthew 6 as a thermometer, taking the temperature of my life, helping me understand where my affections are. And what if I discover that, that my life is actually quite too consumed with this world? I care too much about what's here. Well, give those things away. That's Matthew 6 as thermostat, adjusting the temperature of your life. Put your treasure in heaven and your heart will surely follow. Brother and sister, God doesn't need you to give. He never has. He never will. He wants you to give because he wants your good. He wants your heart. He wants your dreams and desires and ambitions and affections to be built on him and his promises, not the things of this world that will surely disappoint and disappear. I love the way the Proverbs 27, sorry, Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5 describe this, this fleeting nature of wealth. It says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Don't give your heart to something like that. It's not here for more than just a moment. Its promises are empty and vain. It will not do what it says, and it will not do it for very long. So, so I wonder, just to think about your own life. What is it that you daydream about? What fears tend to occupy your mind? What kind of goals do you set for yourself? Which mistakes of yours do you most regret? What do you find yourself talking about? And what do these indicators of your heart tell you about where your treasure really is? 
is the prescription for that ailment for you to give, for you to give more. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, you are always welcome here. I hope you feel welcome here. But I wonder how this sounds to you. My hope is that you see that the Bible's discussion of money and giving is quite different from pretty much every other religion out there. I'd say the standard religious equation regarding giving looks something like this. Give many money to some need so that you will gain favor with God and he'll do something for you. Right? Give money to the poor, to build a temple, to make a big sacrifice, to put God in your debt. But in the Christian Bible, the accounting actually works quite differently. It starts not with our gift, but with God. God who has given an indescribable gift to us in Jesus Christ, which makes us want to give, joyfully give worldly passing treasure so that our hearts may better love the God who gave. And just think for a moment how astounding it is that God actually cares about all this. The God who created this universe, who sustains this universe, who is the ruler of continents and planets and star systems and galaxies, who is Lord of all time and eternity, this God cares about what you do. And more than that, he cares about why you do it. Because he loves you. Because he's jealous for your joy. Just let that thought blow your mind for a moment. It's astounding that God cares about why you give. Now this idea that God tells us to give because he wants our hearts, it brings to mind some of the reasons why we don't give as we should. I think one is fear. We don't give because we're afraid, we're anxious that maybe we'll need the money later on. Or worldliness, I don't give because I'm really quite wanting what the world has to offer. Or if you're a parent, you're really quite wanting what the world has, offered, has to offer your kids. It's amazing how often we ourselves issue worldliness and then we want everything for our kids. Which teaches them what? Or maybe not worldliness or fear, but greed. Remember Jesus said that there are many kinds of greed. The greed of the person who has much and wants more. The greed of the person who has little but wants much. The greed of the person who wants a selfishly comfortable life. The greed of the person who is stingy rather than generous. The greed of the person who's fallen into envy. Just think about those. Fear and anxiety, worldliness, greed. If you had to pick one of those that most competes for your heart's affections, which one would it be? Let me just repeat them for you so you can think. Right now you can actually think. I told you before, just write down questions. Now you can ask it and answer it. Fear, anxiety about the future, where we try to insulate against fear with money, which never works. Worldliness, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things that God has given to us. We'll talk about that more later. 
And yet, are you using your money to invest in the promises of this world rather than the promises of your God? And greed. Greed when I have much, greed when I have little, greed for comfort, for stinginess, greed that results in envy. I wonder which of these, which of these is most dangerous for your heart? By the way, you may be wondering why we're having a sermon on giving this morning. Glad you asked. Let me tell you. It's not because our church is in financial need, right? Pastors talk about giving. Budget must be behind. That's not what's going on. In fact, at our last members meeting, I told you how delighted I was that even though the government shut down, your giving didn't. And we met budget for January and February. Praise the Lord for giving you that desire. Now, the reason we're having the sermon is that every year I track what portion of our members give to our church. <clears throat> Some of you don't give because you can't give because you don't have money, right? You're a student or you're out of work. That's okay. There's no spiritual demerit system for not giving. But over the last four years, the portion of our church who give has dropped from about three-quarters of us to about two-thirds of us over the course of four years. But I don't think the portion who are students are unemployed has changed in those last four years. I'm not particularly concerned about that from, from a financial perspective. Again, our budget is doing fine, but I am quite concerned from a pastoral perspective. And I'm concerned about our faithfulness as a congregation. When we stand before the Lord to give account someday, will we be able to answer well? for what we've done with what he's given to us? Because our hearts follow our treasure, not giving is a very dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous way to live. So one implication for us is that we should be praying for those in this church who don't give. It doesn't matter if they're doing that by choice or by necessity, whether it's disobedient or not. Not giving puts us in a very vulnerable place. And those of us in that vulnerable place, we need prayer. We should pray. And of course, our exemplar here is Jesus, isn't it? He put aside wealth unimaginable, the trappings of heavenly royalty, and emptied himself, Philippians tells us, to the point that he could say, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke 9.38, to the point that he willingly took on death on a Roman cross. Why? Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him. Jesus' treasure was entirely in the will of his father, and so he freely gave up absolutely everything to follow him. But Jesus isn't just an example for us. I've made reference several times already to this idea of reward. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Jesus says. Well, how is it that we, as people who are sinners and rebels against God, can even be contemplating this idea of heavenly reward? Well, that's, that's the Christian gospel that says that we are sinners. We have done things we know are wrong. We've done a lot of things we justified to ourselves that we're wrong anyway. God made each of us to show off how amazing he is. And every time we choose to do something, whether it's against the law or not, 
that chooses something rather than God, that is a lie about the goodness of God. The goodness of the one who is the most satisfying, excellent, worthy, beautiful being imaginable. Those lies are horrid. Even the good things I do, if they are not out of faith, choosing God's way are lies about him. And precisely because God is so good, he will correct those lies. He will not allow the wrong things we've said about this perfect being to go uncorrected, which means that we have spent our lives working overtime and the wages of sin are death and hell. And yet our, our hope is also in the goodness of God. In his goodness, he's not only just, he is merciful. And in his mercy, he sent Jesus, God become man to live an absolutely perfect life, the life we should have lived, the life that only ever said true things about him. And yet astoundingly, let himself be crucified, killed in our place for our sin. So that for all of us who would put our faith in him and follow him in repentance, that uh, our sin can be forgiven because of Christ's death on the cross, that Christ's perfect life is credited to us so that when God looks at us, he sees perfect people and so that we can have an idea that in the future for us is not condemnation by this God who is so good, but reward. It's amazing how we get there, isn't it? And that leads us to our second point, that God wants us to give so that we will gain heavenly reward. That's what Paul's referring to in Philippians 4.17, the fruit that increases to your credit. What is he talking about there? Well, Scripture makes promises about heavenly reward that are really quite extravagant. Luke 6.38 Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There really is heavenly reward for earthly generosity. And to whatever extent that doesn't factor into your decisions about money, your financial strategy is woefully underperforming. Now, because the so-called prosperity gospel has wreaked such havoc on Christian churches here in the D.C. area, I just need to pause for a moment and emphasize that when Scripture talks about reward, it's talking about a reward in heaven, in the, the next life. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So if you decide to give more money to this church, God may decide to increase your net worth, but he has not promised to do that. I assume that if you give money to this church, your net worth will go down, at least from a physical, earthly perspective. And, and any Christian teacher who promises or insinuates a promise that you will have a better marriage, a better bank balance, a better doctor's visit, if you write a check to his or her ministry, is no Christian teacher. And you should stop listening to that person. Now, the promise that God gives is heavenly reward for earthly generosity. I so appreciate how Charles Spurgeon put it. He says, Dear brethren, we have to pawn the present for the future. Our inheritance is not on this side of Jordan. Our joy is yet to be revealed. 
I grant you that we may have much thrown in, for the Lord is a good paymaster. But on the road to heaven, he gives us only our spending money. We serve a God who's amazingly generous. It should not surprise us when he chooses to bless us now financially, but he has not promised that. And yet he does promise something far better, which is a reward in heaven. A few years ago, the government of India declared that all 500,000 rupee notes would be null and void. And the most amazing thing about the announcement is it would take effect four hours after they announced it. That'd be the equivalent of me telling you that all $10 and $20 bills in your wallet will be of no value at uh, 4 o'clock this afternoon. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to take those soon-to-be worthless bills and trade them in for a currency that's going to last. Thank you, Prime Minister Modi, for an excellent illustration of the Christian life. Because <laughs> that's what we're doing, isn't it? You can't take it with you and yet, as it's been said before, you can send it on ahead. Just like those busy merchants in India exchanging soon-to-be worthless wealth for what's going to last, you can exchange worldly wealth for treasure that will last. Two implications of this. First, it means that we should be deliberate with our money. So as I was putting the sermon together, I was thinking in my head, in what ways... Do we struggle in this? What, what are the enemies of faithful giving for this congregation? And I do think we struggle with worldliness and greed and fear. But I think one of the biggest barriers to faithful giving in this church may actually be disinterest. We just don't take time to think about our money. For some of us, we're not deliberate with our money because we don't have a lot of it. I think if I don't have a lot, it must not matter much what I do with it. To which I just would call your attention to the, the giving heroes of the Bible. A bunch of freed slaves who gave so much to the tabernacle, Moses had to send them away. Uh, the Macedonian Christians, Paul says, who gave out of extreme poverty. That widow in Mark 12 who gave all she had to live on and she is praised by the Son of God. The giving heroes in the Bible are poor. It's interesting, in 1 Timothy 6, when Paul addresses the wealthy, he tells them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be ready to share. So an economist might say that the generosity of the poor doesn't matter much because it can't amount to much. It's the wealthy who can really give and really do something. But in God's economy, it's actually precisely the opposite. The poor are the giving heroes of the Bible, the rich are expected to be generous, and yet what God really wants from them, 1 Timothy 6, is to be rich in good deeds. Gifts out of scarcity, most honor God, those are gifts of faith. Or maybe you're not deliberate about what you do with your money, not because you don't have much of it, but you actually see it as virtuous to not think about money. Yeah, I'm not really into money. You can't take it with you, right? I don't give it much thought. You know, in Luke chapter 3, the crowds come to John the Baptist and ask him how they can repent. And he gives three answers. And they all have to do with money. That's interesting. Their question wasn't about money. It was about the entirety of life. Yet his answer is entirely about money. Why is that? 
Because what you do with your money is an excellent indicator, maybe even the preeminent indicator of where your life is at. Not caring about money is not virtuous, it's foolish. So what does it mean to be deliberate? Well, number one, it means that we recognize that all of our money belongs to God. That all of our money is to be used for God's purposes. Not just what I give, it's all there for God's purposes. Using money for his purposes could mean using money to obey his commands, like feeding my family. Uh, Using money to be generous with my neighbors. Using money to fund ministry at church. Using money to enjoy the good creation God has given to us. Lots of different ways that your money can honor God. Though I would point out that giving is an unusually reliable way for your money to honor God. Lots of ways we can get in trouble those other ways. Uh, giving, generosity, is kind of like the TSP of heaven for those government employees here. Divinely engineered to be low risk and high return. At least from the perspective of eternity. But again, Everything you have belongs to God. You don't own what you own, and someday you will give account for how you've entrusted, how you've used what he entrusted to you. Second part of being deliberate is knowing what you do with your money. A personal budget can be really useful here. Uh, Ministries like Crown Financial and Financial Peace University, there's some good books on money. Uh, In fact, the best book I can recommend on money is uh, called Money Counts by Graham Bynan, a pastor in the UK. If you agree to read this by the end of the summer, I have some copies. I'll be standing at that door right there afterwards. I'd be delighted to give you a few. Uh, I can also give you, if you like, a copy of The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, which is more specifically on giving. And uh, you'll see that blue insert in your bulletin. I wrote out 12 questions with 12 scripture references that you can take this week and just work your way through them and help yourself be more deliberate about money. Be a great thing to do by yourself or maybe with with a friend or a family member. And a third thought about giving or about being deliberate. Talk about it. Talk about what you do with your money. I think it's a very strange church and we're brutally honest about our struggles with ambition and Lust and fear and lying and pride. But we never talk about money. Jesus taught a lot more about money than he did about lust and fear and pride, ambition. So my challenge for you is to talk about these things. If you're a member of this church, do not let this month disappear before you take time with another member of this church to talk about your money. How much do you make? How much do you save and invest? How much do you spend? How much do you give? Now, Jesus warned us against giving for the praise of men. So I am not talking about a boastful conversation. I'm talking about a humble and contrite conversation looking for correction and wisdom. How can we be on guard against all kinds of greed if we never ask for help? Which leads us to a second implication of eternal reward. Implication number one, be deliberate. Number two, the giving is something we do together. After Pentecost, nearly every example we see in the scriptures about giving is giving done together as a church. So Barnabas lays his money at the feet of the apostles in Acts chapter 4. 
It's the churches at Antioch and Philippi that support Paul's missionary work. Uh, Paul calls on the Corinthian church to gather money together so that together they can give it to the poor in Judea. And one of the only commands in the scripture to give, I mentioned it before, Galatians 6, 6, is specifically to give in a way that supports the teaching we receive. Well, since we receive teaching primarily from this church, this church should be the primary beneficiary of our giving. The overwhelming thrust of the New Testament is that giving is to be done together as a church. Why is that? Well, if you've been to members' meetings, you've heard me use the analogy of a church budget as a spiritual mutual fund. You understand how normally a mutual fund works. Thousands of investors pool their money together. They entrust it to an investment manager who looks all over for the best ways to invest that money in line with the fund's goals. And someday, you expect to get a return from your money. Well, there's lots of similarities to our church budget. We all pool our money together as a church. Our elders look the world over for the best opportunities to invest in God's work. We vote together as a congregation to invest it that way. And one day when you stand before the Lord to give account for all he's entrusted to you, my fervent prayer is that you will be so thankful for every dollar you invested in this church budget because you're seeing before you an eternal spiritual return on that earthly investment. Now, how do you figure out where to best invest that spiritual mutual fund? Well, again, that's a question we are far better equipped to answer together as a church than we can as individuals. We have the work of the elders, of our deacon of budget, of the whole congregation as we think together about the best way to invest this money. It doesn't mean our budget never makes mistakes, but I, at least, am quite confident that the money I've invested in God's kingdom through our church budget is doing far better than anything I would have done by myself. How much money that God has entrusted to you have you invested in his kingdom through the budget of this church? If you're a member here, I hope for most of you, it's considerable and at least enough to make you quite interested when I present the first draft of our budget in a few weeks. Where our treasures, there our heart should be also. And again, let me speak to those here who are not Christians. We all have a desire for our lives to have some kind of lasting impact, don't we? Maybe especially here in this city. But really doing something that lasts is a fool's errand for almost everybody. Retirement homes are full of people, despondent, as they watch the collapse of what they built with their lives as the world forgets them and passes them by. And that's just the things they see within their lifetime, let alone the 10 years that follow, or 100, or 1,000. Only the Bible is really honest with you. It says that this world really is passing away, that nothing around you is going to last. Nothing you build here is going to last, and yet, and yet we do have opportunity in this world right now to build what will last, not just for a few generations, but forever, as we invest in the things above. That desire you have deep in your heart to do something that's going to last that's a good desire. That's a desire that has been given to you by the one who made you, 
But don't think that the end point of the desire is your work or what you acquire or your reputation or your children. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. If Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com, had asked you in 1995 to give him some money in exchange for 5% of the company, you wouldn't see that you doing him a favor, would you? No, by now you would think that is probably the best gift I've ever received in my entire life was the opportunity to give money to Jeff. So why should you not be bursting at the seams with excitement and enthusiasm for this opportunity to invest in treasure which is eternal? 2 Corinthians 9, 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, I would implore you, friend, take God at his word. He knows what he's talking about. He has never, ever lied to us. Every promise he ever makes will come exactly to fruition as he intended it. Whether you have a lot or a little, given everything he's revealed about the nature of eternal treasure, why should you ever discover someday that you invested only sparingly? Of course, this whole idea of laying up treasure in heaven can sound somewhat theoretical. How exactly does our use of money in this life have anything to do with our condition in the next? Which leads us to our last point. One final reason why God wants us to give is because he wants his glory to be known. Notice how Paul finishes that passage in Philippians 4 we were looking at earlier. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory, in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So yes, Paul wanted the Philippians' gift because he knew it was good for them to partner with him. He wanted their gift because he was eager for the fruit that would accumulate to their credit. But beyond that, he wanted their gift because he wanted God to get glory. Again, I asked earlier, why does God love a cheerful giver? Because giving cheerfully, not under compulsion, not out of guilt, is what shows off the glory of God's goodness and God's generosity. So imagine how my wife would feel if I, I gave her flowers, and in response to her delighted thank you, I snapped, well, it's her anniversary, I'm supposed to. Some gift that is, right? Giving out of compulsion is saying that there's a better use of your money, but you know what? God's told me to give, so I guess I'll have to give, but I'm not going to be happy about it. And yet a cheerful gift? It says that I am delighted to do what God calls me to do because he really is best for me. And that shows off how good God is. That proclaims how desirable he is. Or to use a more biblical term, it glorifies him. It glorifies his goodness, his excellence, his worth. The family who throws a million dollar wedding for their daughter shows out how, off how extravagant their wealth really is. The Christian who gladly gives of her material wealth is showing off how extravagant the spiritual wealth is that she has received in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is how material wealth turns into spiritual treasure. 
What will last forever are not the things in this room or around us, but the souls in this room, and significantly, the story that our lives will someday tell about the goodness and glory of God. Heaven is a celebration of God. It's a celebration of God as we look through all that's happened here in this life, and though we can't possibly understand now, then we will see how it is so perfectly revealed the magnificence of our creator and his justice and power and mercy and kindness and generosity. Your giving displays the glory of God and it is that display, that statement that's going to last forever that will be part of what we rejoice about forever as we gather around his throne to praise him for what he's done. So every time you give, you're making a statement. You're making a statement that God is better than what else you could have done with that money. And, and sometimes that giving requires real faith. Sometimes it involves real risk. And when your giving involves faith, when it involves risk, that statement is all the more powerful, isn't it? Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is my faith that turns a financial transaction into something of eternal value. Faith not in my ideas of what I want to see happen. Faith in the Bible is, promise, is faith in God's promises. Sometimes that faith isn't too difficult to muster up. Sometimes that faith takes real courage. But every time we give with right motives, we are giving by faith. Because every time we give, we exchange what this world loves and says is worthless. I'm sorry, we exchange what this world loves for what it says is worthless. Because we trust God more than we trust this world. So does your giving feel compulsory or cheerful? Is your giving respectable in the eyes of this world? Or is it crazy and foolish in the eyes of this world? Because you're risking everything on the promises of God. Well, I would tell you, risk everything on the promises of God. There is no safer place to be than to be sold out for him. And you know, it's when I first understood this truth that I first discovered the joy of giving. So when I first came to this church 20 years ago, working in business, not as a pastor, I, I gave, I would say my giving was more rote than cheerful. And then I began to see giving less as a financial transaction and more as an opportunity to show off the goodness and glory of my Savior, who I was falling in love with more and more every day. I discovered it's actually a lot of fun to mock the things this world values as I give it away. So I remember giving to help a missionary buy a car and my own 10-year-old car felt a lot more fun to drive because I saw what I was doing and I was mocking what the world values. I learned the joy of taking real risks backed by the promises of God and I began to understand the joy of being generous. Okay, but you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, Jamie, good for you. I don't have that joy. What do I do? Well, I'd say you have three options. You could give with a grumpy spirit. That's the worst option. It lies about God. That's a horrible thing to do. Option number two. You could spend the money instead of giving it. Better than option one. Hardly the generosity that rescues our hearts from the promises of this world. Or number three. You can give not out of compulsion, but by faith, believing, despite what you feel, that it is good to give. 
and his giving becomes regular and habitual, your heart will follow your treasure and you will find joy. Now, for some of you, this has been a remarkably disappointing sermon. Because as soon as you saw the topic of the sermon, there was one and only one question in your mind, which I have quite intentionally left unanswered until now. So you're looking at the time. You're thinking, this thing has to wrap up soon. Is he ever going to get to the question I have in my mind, the question that you are desperately hoping I'm going to answer? How much should I give? Well, I've waited till now because we can't answer that question until we've understood these three reasons why God cares about our giving. Because he wants our hearts, he wants our reward, he wants his glory known. You see, for for a lot of us, we've been taught that Christians should give 10% of their income to the church, which gets us into all kinds of knots debating how do you calculate it? Off my net or my gross? How do I figure this out? I just want to point out for those of us who are in that category that nowhere in the Bible are Christians commanded to give 10%. Nowhere. We see examples of 10%, say, in the patriarchs. We do see a command for Old Testament Israel to give 10%. But like the sacrificial system and going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship, that's fulfilled in Christ. No, what we see in the New Testament is something much more ambitious. For Christians, we don't give 10%. We give 100%. Everything you have is God's. Everything is to be used for his purposes. Not 10% is God's and the rest I can do with what I want. It's all his. When you hold to that rule of 10%, it makes those who can't give that much feel wrongly guilty. And it makes those who can give and should give more feel wrongly complacent. I assume that most people in this room should be giving at least 10% to this church. But how much you give depends on the best way for you to use every resource God has given you, including your money for his purposes. So how do we figure that out? Well, we have a whole 13-week class called Stewardship answering that question. How do I use what God has given for his purposes? It starts next month. I'm not going to give you the whole 13-week class right now. Don't worry. But to really quickly sum up that answer, we need to recognize that every non-sinful use of money can bring glory to God. You might decide you're going to spend what you need and give the rest. That's, That's one way you figure this out. That's a better strategy than many of us are taking right now, but there's two problems with that. The first is how subjective that idea of need is. I remember reading a study by the University of Chicago a few years ago that said that when people go from the working class to the middle class, they become less generous. Why is that? Well, they buried into it a little further and found that it's because needs rise faster than income. A second problem is that God has actually given us things not simply to meet our needs, but because we can worship him by enjoying them. 1 Timothy 6, we should put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So not a tithe mentality, not a need mentality, but a priority mentality. Again, understand that every non-sinful use of money can show off the goodness of God. Provide for yourself and prove out the goodness of his command to do that. Enjoy a dinner out and enjoy the goodness of his creation. Give to your church and show off the glory of his promises. Lots of ways you can do that. Then determine what's the best allocation of money across all of that. 
Now, with the commands in Scripture to give and support the teaching you receive, with very few exceptions, those who are members of the church who have income should be giving to this church. If you feel like you're one of those exceptions, you have income, you don't give, I would strongly encourage you to talk to an elder about that, one of the pastors of the church, so we can pray for you, we can encourage you. Uh, maybe we need to give money to you to help you out, which we do all the time. Don't make that decision not to give a private decision. The stakes are too high. Talk about someone. Talk about that with someone. And for those who do give, I assume, given the abundance that God has given to us, primarily in Christ, but also the fact that we live in such a wealthy city, we should be giving at least 10%. We should, probably more importantly, give enough that affects our hearts. If you don't find that you have enough treasure in heaven that your heart is following that direction, I am quite positive giving more would be a really good idea for you. So what's the exact amount you should give? That's a great question to talk about this week with your spouse, with your small group, with your friends in this church. And with that, we should conclude. Why does God care that you give? Not because he needs your money, but because he wants your heart. Not because he promises earthly reward. He promises much better. He says that we can use earthly treasure to yield heavenly reward. Not for guilt, but for joy. As we discover the joy of using our money to show off the glory, the reputation of our indescribable God. And praise God, he has not waited to give to us until we give to him. In fact, I don't care what you give in this life, it will be an insignificant pittance compared to the massive, overwhelming generosity that God showed us in sending his own son to die in our place to rescue us from our sin. And compared to the massive, overwhelming generosity that God is showing us in dwelling with us and giving us the fellowship of his spirit in this church. When compared to the massive, overwhelming generosity that God says he will show us as we are swept away forever by his goodness and glory and generosity in heaven. Our God is an amazing, generous God. We don't have to induce him to give. No, we give as a joyful, delighted, nearly involuntary response to all that he has given to us, to all that he has given us, to all that he will give to us. What else can we do? So I wonder, do you have more this year than you had last year? Or if you don't, do you have good hope that you'll have more 10 years from now than you do today? Why did God entrust that excess to you? And what kind of response to his generosity can you take that will be part of the song we sing around his throne forever. Let's pray.
Our Father, you are a generous God. You have given us so much more than we could ever possibly appreciate in this life, and you will continue giving and giving and giving forever. We pray that our hearts would respond to that well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.